Welcome. We hope you enjoy this recording from Christ City Church, based in Dublin, Ireland. For more podcasts and information on the church, please visit ChristCityChurch.ie. Thank you for listening. Hello. Um, as Steve just said, uh, 1 Timothy 3, 1 to 16, page 896 of the Church Bibles. Um, so, I'll read Here is a trustworthy saying. Whoever aspires to be an overseer desires a noble task. Now the overseer is to be above reproach, faithful to his wife, temperate, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not given to drunkenness, not violent but gentle, not quarrelsome, not a lover of money. He must manage his own family well and see that his children obey him, and he must do so in a manner worthy of full respect. If anyone does not know how to manage his own family, how can he take care of God's church? He must not be a recent convert, or he may become considered and fall under the same judgment as the devil. He must, not, he, he must also have a good reputation with outsiders, so that he will not fall into disgrace and into the devil's strap. In the same way, deacons are to be worthy of respect, sincere, not indulging in much wine, and not pursuing dishonest gains. They must keep hold of the deep truth of their faith with a clear conscience. (laughs) They must first be tested, and then if there's nothing against them, let them serve as deacons. In the same way, the women are to be worthy of respect, not malicious talkers, but temperate and trustworthy in everything. A deacon must be faithful to his wife and must manage his children and his household well. Those who have served well gain an excellent standing and great assurance in their faith in Christ Jesus. Although I I hope to come to you soon, I'm writing you these instructions so that if I'm delayed, you will know how, how people ought to conduct themselves in God's household, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and foundation of the truth. Beyond all question, the mystery from which true godliness springs, beyond all question, the mystery from which true godliness springs is great. He appeared in the flesh, was vindicated by the spirit, was seen by angels, was preached among the nations, was believed in, in the world, was taken up in glory. Amen. Amen. Good morning, church. It is good to be here. Let me put down the stand. Wonderful. Uh, guys, my name is Maffey. If uh, I haven't met you before, it's lovely to see you. I'd love to connect with you afterwards. You know, barely a week goes by in this world that we don't hear in the news about some form of a leadership crisis. You know, with the rise of social media, with, the, with these platforms that give voice to everyone's opinion, leaders are under more scrutiny than they ever have been before. Whether that's government ministers, whether it's uh, social media CEOs, perhaps leaders in the charitable sector, corporate leaders, uh, businessmen, businesswomen in the private sector, you, you name it, we will not have to wait long before the next scandal is out. 
And it often seems like we are living in a perpetual leadership crisis. We're moving from one leadership crisis to the next. So why is it then that, that given the wealth of training, the resources at our disposal, the experience and the qualifications required to move into such roles, why, why is it that we've got such a perpetual leadership crisis? Well, a best-selling book called Good to Great by Jim Collins has a concept called First Who, Then What? So it's not written by a Christian. It is a secular book. But some of what he is saying, we will soon see, finds its roots in Scripture. And so Jim Collins affirms that those who build great organizations make sure that they have the right people on the bus and the right people in the key seats before they figure out where to drive the bus. They always think first about who and then about what. So when facing chaos and uncertainty, and you cannot possibly predict what's coming around the corner, your best strategy is to have a busload of people who can adapt and perform brilliantly no matter what comes next. Great vision without great people is irrelevant. So Jim Collins reckons that part of the deeper problem is that we're looking to the wrong things whenever it comes to leadership. Suggesting actually who we get is more important than what we get. So what about leadership then in the local church? Well, see today what the Bible has to say about how the local church is led and it's governed. So we're in the second part of a three-week series called Church 101, uh, Lessons in Church Leadership. And we're doing this because next Sunday on the 17th of September, Steve and I are going to be appointed as elders here at CCC. And so it's an important and a significant moment in the life of Christ City Church. And so it's our desire that over these three weeks, these talks will help us understand the role of elders and what it means for the church uh, to be shepherded and, and to be led by elders. So last week, if you were here, Steve was speaking and he, and we looked at this metaphor that the church is a growing and a fruitful vine. And elders are needed to bring stability to the church through pastoral care. Elders are needed to ensure its health through nourishment and then to provide protection from the, from the enemy's schemes. So this week, we're going to briefly consider two things together. Firstly, why do we need qualified leaders? And we're going to look at a bit of a case study in the context of this, of this passage. And then secondly, what do qualified leaders look like? So this passage mentions elders and deacons. And there's going to be a commonality here around character. And that's kind of the giveaway. So that's basically what this passage is about. So we're going to only really look at, at verses 1 to 7 today. And we're not really going to be looking at, at uh, what the passage says about deacons. But the reality is what the passage says about deacons is really what it's also saying about elders. The character is key. So we're going to explore uh, what it means to be uh, qualified as an elder today. So as we jump into the text, it's important to ask ourselves, why do we need qualified leaders? So let's begin to look at the context into which Paul was writing this letter to his understudy, Timothy. And you know, if you were here after Easter... Uh, we were in a, a short series in the book of Acts and in Paul's farewell speech to the Ephesian elders in Acts chapter 20, he provides them with, with what you could call a prophetic warning. And he says to the Ephesian elders, keep watch over yourselves and all the flock of which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers or, or elders. Be shepherds of the church of God, which he has bought with his own blood. And, and look at this, this is what Paul is saying to the Ephesian elders, he's saying, I know that after I leave, savage wolves will come in among you and will not spare the flock. 
And even more key, look at verse 30. Even from your own number, men will arise and distort the truth in order to draw away disciples after them. So five or six years later has passed. The church in Ephesus has been caught in a deathly grip of false teaching. First Timothy indicates that this has come from within the church. So now Paul is addressing uh, Timothy, which, and he is to address the church, which has been torn apart by false teachers. And so in one sense, Paul is, is addressing Timothy to try to put the pieces back together again. The church in Ephesus needed corrective discipline. Destructive doctrines has been brought in that's disrupted the inner life of the church. And given the broader content in the whole letter, it seems that there's been unqualified men who have become elders and have fallen into sin in this city. And it seems some women were crudely flaunting their wealth and their newfound knowledge. So you have unqualified men, women crudely flaunting wealth, and then needy widows have been forsaken by their families and been forced upon to rely on the church. I know the church is to provide for needy widows, absolutely. But the reality is that the needy widows have been forsaken by their family. And then maybe worst of all, sin had been ignored. The gospel message has been diluted and it's been threatened. So Paul is beginning to spell out to Timothy in this letter how the leaders in the local church should conduct themselves. And really, the purpose statement in the first three chapters of 1 Timothy is found here in verses 14 and 15. Paul says, although I hope to come to you soon, I am writing to you these instructions so that if I am delayed, then you will know how people ought to conduct themselves in God's household. And what is God's household? It is the church of the living God, the pillar and foundation of the truth. Look at that. The word conduct, verse 15, means behavior. It's the manner of one's life and one's character. And the reason that Paul is, is, is giving this is because Paul is saying that the local church, Paul's basically saying Christ's city church is the household of God. The local church is the household of God, the church of the living God, the pillar and the foundation of the truth. And we're going to come back to this metaphor uh, again shortly. But Paul's main thrust is what he's saying is that the local church is God's chosen instrument, God's chosen vehicle for proclaiming to the world, for proclaiming to Stalorgan the saving grace of Jesus Christ. As you're in the local church today, I want to tell you that, that you are God's chosen vehicle to proclaim the message of hope to the city of Dublin. So if the mission of God is to be fulfilled through the local church, then the right structures need to be put in place in order for church members to follow, which we spoke about last week, to help the vine grow. And, you know, we've all saw poor examples of church leadership before. We've all saw poor examples of, of secular leadership before. We've all saw poor examples of corporate leadership before. We saw the damage and effect this can have on organizations and individuals. You know, we saw it everywhere. And you know, often these will, will collapse or they'll fall into scandal, not through external pressure. Sometimes it is, but more often than not, it's through internal strife and it's through compromise. And often one of the reasons this has been allowed to happen time and time again is that the criteria that is most prized and sought after in leaders is a bit skewed. You know, if we just get the visionary, the one who will blaze a trail, then we will go to the moon. You know, if we get the relentless worker, the relentless work will mean that productivity will increase, our profit margin will increase, it'll be happy days. Or maybe if we get the straight talker, 
we get the straight talker, everyone will be on the same page, we'll all be aligned, we'll be good to go. I know in Ephesus it's evident that the wrong elders are in the church. And as I said earlier, it's likely that unqualified men were leading the church. And as a result, the church was spiritually malnourished, it was underprotected, and it was not very cared for. So remember verse 15. The church of the living God is a pillar and foundation of the truth. How important then is it that we have qualified leaders? You know, God's household isn't, and and as I was writing this, I was sitting outside looking at a house. God's household isn't the drain pipe. It's not the external lighting. It's not the nice fascia boarding. In fact, God's household is a pillar and the foundation of the truth. The local church is critical to the mission of God here in Dublin. You know what? The church is not God's plan B for Dublin. God isn't going to go and, 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 and save Dublin through his own means. Not at all. God has commissioned the local church to be his primary vehicle to see his mission fulfilled here in the city. And you and I are a part of that. So we need qualified leaders because the church is God's household. And this is the reality. We need qualified leaders because the church is God's household. But what kind of qualified leaders should the church have? Did God intend for his church to be led by just anyone? Or did he give some sort of instructions to help us? So what do qualified leaders look like? And this is where we're going to labor. Since the people of God are instructed to follow elders, God demands that the elders be the type of people who are worthy of the trust and submission of the flock. Elders are to be the type of people who are worthy of the trust and submission of the flock. So our passage today in 1 Timothy 3 lays out qualifications. It doesn't lay out preferences. It's important you hear that. These are qualifications. They're not preferences. They're benchmarks against which every potential elder must be measured. So to set the stage for this this catalog of elder requirements, Paul is saying in verse 1, here's a trustworthy saying. Whoever aspires to be an elder or an overseer, sorry, desires a noble task. In in this first letter to Timothy, Paul uses this phrase, here's a trustworthy saying, five times. And and the premise is that whenever he uses it, he's given special attention to the saying that's associated or the saying that follows. And so it's like Matthew going into a shop and and I'm looking at the food packaging on, on some of the things I want to buy and I'm looking for the highlighted bits, the bits that are in bold. Are there any nuts in this product? And I find the emboldened text, this product may contain traces of peanut, almond, hazelnut, and other nuts. Bam, back on the shelf it goes. For those who do not know me, I've got a severe peanut allergy. I'm looking for the emboldened text. I'm looking for the key, uh, the, the key thing that's been communicated here. So what's, what's Paul communicating to Timothy? Anyone who aspires to be an elder or an overseer desires a noble task. So there's supposed to be an aspiration to the office of eldership and there's also great value in the office of elder. Do you see both these things? And since God declares the office of eldership to be a noble task, it follows then that the elder must be one of excellent Christian character. A noble task demands a noble person. And it's to this end then that Paul provides this list of qualifications for those we'll now see both as elders and deacons. So as Paul begins to list to Timothy these qualifications of an elder, he begins with an overarching, all-encompassing, all-embracing qualification. And if there's one qualification that kind of embraces them all, it's this one, that elders are to be above reproach. To be above reproach means to be free from any offensive um, or, or blight of character or conduct. 
You know, someone, someone who is above reproach will have critics, but they will have critics who are unable to discredit their profession of faith on the basis of their character. You know, I have critics, absolutely. I have critics in my football club. But more often than not, my critics are on the basis of how I play football, not the conduct of my character. You have many critics now. So. I do have many critics. You should just see my WhatsApp group chat. <laughs> Elders are to be above reproach, first and foremost. Secondly, faithful to his wife. So the first and foremost area where an elder must be above reproach is in the area of marital and sexual faithfulness. And some, some people have suggested that Paul's purpose here is to insist that only married men be elders. In other words, the phrase husband of one wife prohibits single men from being elders or deacons. Let me say three things on this. Firstly, Paul does not say husband of a wife. If you have a Bible open, will you take a look at it? It doesn't say husband of a wife, but husband of one wife. Paul's point here is that the elder must have nothing to do with any woman other than his wife. And then secondly, if single men cannot be elders, then Paul himself, not to mention Jesus, would be excluded from eldership. And you know, Paul's letters to Timothy suggest that he was an elder. And then thirdly, in view of Paul's statements in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, and in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, Paul outlines the distinct advantages of singleness whenever it comes to ministry. So it seems unlikely that here he would exclude single men from eldership. Why would he exclude those men who, according to his own words, have more potential for effective, undistracted service than anyone else? Above reproach, faithful to his wife, temperate. Let's do three at a time, self-controlled and respectable. A mental sobriety, if you will. Those who are balanced in their judgment. And the reality for any leader is that their walk must match their talk. They're to be temperate, they're to be self-controlled, they're to be respectable. Their walk must match their talk. They're to be hospitable. And let me say two things on this. You know, firstly, hospitality is never done at a distance. It involves a sharing of one's life. You know, right now, Emma, Abigail, and I have been living with Andrew, Ola, and Theo for the past week. And, and the reality is it's been costly and it's been inconvenient for these guys to host us, despite what they might say. They'll probably say that we are a delight. But it's been costly and it's been, and it's been inconvenient for them to host us. But hospitality is up close and it's personal. But secondly, it doesn't end with other Christians and, and it doesn't end with people who you're friendly towards. And it doesn't just happen in the home. True hospitality extends beyond our personal preferences. It extends beyond our church walls and it gets down and dirty, particularly with those who can offer us nothing in return. You know, if the church leaders are inhospitable, you can be sure that the church will become inhospitable. And when the church becomes inhospitable, the church will become indifferent to the needs of those around them, both in the church and also in the city. Qualified leaders are hospitable. Qualified leaders are to be able to teach. And I should have put a little star beside this one, and we'll come to it later. Those who oversee the local church must be able to guide and protect it through the use of scripture. You know, in Acts 20, elders are instructed to be able to shepherd the church of God or shepherd the flock of God. And a major part of shepherding the flock is, to, is the feeding off the flock. But notice this. 
And this is where little star would come in. This is the only qualification that we will find that is not linked to the elder's character, but it's to their competence. So elders must be able to teach, not given to drunkenness. And you notice Paul isn't prohibiting the consumption of alcohol as some, as some people do, but rather he's prohibiting the abuse of alcohol that damages our testimony, that stunts our spiritual growth. It's not given to drunkenness, not violent but gentle. It's doing another one, not quarrelsome. You know, some, some leaders are quick to enter into a fight, quick to draw battle lines. Chuck Swindle once said, a good leader knows how to take the heat without spreading the flames. You know, gentle leaders don't feel threatened whenever other people disagree with them. You know, harsh leaders often harbor deep insecurities about their status, about their position, and about their authority. And that comes out in how they speak with other people. So an elder is to be gentle. Someone whose heart is so settled in the gospel, so convinced by who they are in Christ, that it gives them a freedom to treat other people well, regardless of how they're being treated. So they're not to be violent, but gentle. They're not to be quarrelsome. They're not to be a lover of money. And here's this property, money isn't the issue. Money isn't the problem, but rather one's attitude to it. You know, the religious leaders in Jesus' day turned the temple into a, into a mart in order to line their own pockets. But an elder's heart ought to be free from the love of money. I once heard the phrase, love God and use money, and never get that reversed. And that's so true. Love God and use money. And so Paul goes on in verses four and five, then to give us this metaphor of a household of God by comparing it to the person that manages their household well. He must manage his own family well and see that his children obey him. And he must do so in a manner worthy of full respect. If anyone does not know how to manage his own family, how then can he take care of God's church? You know, the expectation here is faithfulness and fruitfulness in the lesser before the greater and again, it's a little ironic that in the weeks leading up uh, to my appointment as an elder here at CCC, that me and my family are living with another family from the church. Others who will see our lives up close for who and for what they are. And Paul's thrust here is that elders are to be those who we can look at in their family life and say that I could affirm their leadership in church on the basis for how they treat their family. I can affirm their leadership in the church on the basis of how they treat their family. And Paul goes on in verse 6 and he says, He must not be a recent convert or he may become conceited and fall under the same judgment as the devil. And so in other words, he must not be quick to bring people to, to uh, positions of leadership and authority. Verse 7, he must, not, or sorry, he must also have a good reputation with outsiders so that he will not fall into disgrace and into the devil's trap. And this is one of the things that I admire most in my father-in-law. He's got a great reputation with outsiders. And it's not that he's concerned most for his reputation, but he's, he's an elder in the church, but also his wider community sees that he's a man of God. So let me summarize all of this. And let me say this, the character matters most. Jim Collins isn't far off the mark. Who we get is far more important than what we get. And you know, eldership is much less about competence than it is character, although competence does matter. Therefore, anyone aspiring to eldership must give themselves to the formation of godly character. 
And so one of the steps in the transformation into a Christ-like character, I want you hear this, is first of all admitting the flaws and the weaknesses in your own character, all the while trusting God to transform them. It'd be easy for me to say that elders are to be these people who, uh, who are the, the real deal, they are the finished article, they have made it. They have jumped over all the hurdles, they have crossed the finish line, they are now good to go. Not at all. One of the big steps in the transformation into the Christ-like character is admitting our flaws and admitting our weaknesses, all the while trusting God to transform them. You know, each and every one of us, whether you're in a position of leadership of any description or not, each and every one of us are tempted to find our comfort, to find our security, to place our righteousness, to find our acceptance in other people and in other things, perhaps in our jobs, in our qualifications, in our status, in our paycheck. We are all tempted to find these things in, in, in other things. And you know, in the, in the book Gospel Eldership by Robert Thun, it's a book that Steve and I have been studying in preparation for eldership. He outlines some biblical realities to help us discern the contours of our character. And for me, this has been super challenging. And I want to go through a couple of these or a few of these. First of all, is characters developed over time. You know, none of us waking up one day in somehow of godly character. You know, I woke up one time and I knew the, the words to a Johnny Cash song. And I suspect I fell asleep to it on repeat. But I tell you this, none of us waking up to godly character. The character each and every one of us has has been formed over time by the small incremental choices, the decisions that we make that mold and shape our being. And so at CCC, Steve has been an acting elder and he's been in this role ever since he and Leanne have planted the church. And while elders are biblically mandated, it is important not to rush into the selecting of elders. Time was given to discern character, to discern competence, to discern compatibility, capacity and commitment to the city. Time has been given. We've not been in a rush to this. And so committing Mafia to eldership next week wasn't an overnight decision, but it's come off the back of, of five years in the CCC community. Characters developed over time. But secondly, it's discerned in community. Characters discerned in community. It's with those, those people around us are our best judge of character. You want to find out what Matthew's character's like? Don't always go to Steve. Go to Emma. Go to my football club manager. Those who we're sharing life with. Perhaps go to my guys in a life group. If you want to know what your character is like, go to those who hold you to account. For me, it's the guys in my life group. It's my staff team who I work alongside. It's my Northside City group. Big props to Northside City group. Come on. It's my wife, it's my family, it's those I share my life with. Character discernment never happens on paper when it comes to the local church. But it happens in the nitty-gritty. And in particular, it happens in the response to sin and failure. You want to know what somebody's character is like? Look at how they respond to their own sin. Look at how they respond to their own failure. So for those who have been considered for eldership, it's not merely a subjective aspiration but it's been an aspiration that's been tried and it's been tested. It's been confirmed by other godly leaders in the context of a local church community. And then finally, characters are evaluated under pressure. You know, it's easy to put on a good face and it's easy to let people know we're all fine and we're good. 
I've jumped over all the hurdles, I've made it to the end of the 100 meter line, I'm good to go, ready for the medal around my neck and to be paraded. If you want to know what someone is really like, what their character really, really shows, and let's begin to watch them under pressure. Watch what comes out of them when they're squeezed. I know it's easy for us to blame circumstances or say, ah, but that, that, that's just the way he is. That's, that's just his personality. No, I want to tell you this. Pressure and challenging times do not create character. They merely reveal it. But hear this. For those of you who are aspiring to eldership or any form of leadership, God isn't over there waiting for you to change. He's not over there waiting. He's not looking at his watch. God is patient. And God is dwelling in you by his spirit. And God is more committed to your holiness and your righteousness than you are. Because Jesus loves you. And because he loves you, he is more committed to transforming you than you are to transforming you. Do you hear that? And because Jesus loves his church, he is more committed to making sure that his church is godly leaders. So if character matters most, and if we've been given this blueprint for an example to be emulated, you might be asking, well, well, Matthew, I'm not going to be inducted as an elder next week, so what does all this mean for me? Well, I want to say three things. What does this mean for me? We are all called, firstly, to grow up into Christ, every single one of us. So these are characteristics to be modeled. You know, the character Paul describes to Timothy for elders and deacons should be aspirations for every single disciple. If you're a follower of Jesus, if you're a disciple of Jesus, these are, these are character aspirations that every single one of us should model our lives on. If we want to grow up into Christ, these are character traits and these are conduct that is befitting of every Christian. But it is a bare minimum for those in eldership. Elders are going to be called and, and held to a higher standard, absolutely. But these are characteristics, these are aspirations for every one of us. So we're called to model this lifestyle, both in front of other believers and encourage them and exhort them toward Christ-likeness. In, in the sense that Paul says to the church in Corinth, follow me as I follow Christ. So I would want to say, follow me as I follow Christ. But it's also before non-believers so that we can be this radical witness to, to an alternative life that is built on Christ so that we can call people to follow Christ. So firstly, we are all called to grow up into Christ. Secondly, it's to res the responsibility of holding us to account. We're all called to the responsibility of holding us to account. You, next week, are going to be responsible for holding Steve and I to account. And this responsibility is for you. If you're a member here at CCC, this is a responsibility that you're going to bear. You are called to hold Steve and I to account. Now, you're not called to nitpick. You're not called to fault find, but you are called to hold us to account for how we live our lives and how we lead Christ's church. Later in this letter to, to Timothy, Paul goes on to say in, uh, in verse 19 and 20, do not entertain an accusation against an elder unless it is brought by two or three witnesses. But those elders who are sinning, you are to reprove before everyone so that others may take warning. Church, I will tell you, Steve and I will 100% let you down at some point along the way. And for the sake of Christ's church and for the sake of our personal holiness, we will need to be corrected and we will need to be reproved by you. And we want to call you to hold us to account. So it's a responsibility for you. And then thirdly, it's to know how to conduct ourselves. Your leaders 
are not above you. You know, if we are the household of God, then we are a family who are on mission together. Families have household standards. The church of God does as well. And here's the thing, Steve and I are not above them. Some of you are leaders in various roles here at CCC, whether that's city groups, whether that's the, the, the leadership team, the congregation team, Sunday serving teams, finance team, trustees, among other teams. And in positions of leadership, there will be required greater degrees of responsibility and accountability for how you live and how you lead your lives. And so this is for each and every one of us to know how we, how we can conduct ourselves. And you know, this letter that Paul writes to Timothy is directed to Timothy to instruct him on how God's household should be looked after. And, and Paul was instructing Timothy directly, but at the very end of this letter, Paul finishes this letter with this phrase, grace be with you all. And in the Greek, this word you is a plural you. Up to this point, it's singular. So Paul is, is saying, Timothy, this, this, this is how you, you should lead the church. This is how you should teach the church. This is how uh, you, you, should, um, you should look after the elders. This is how the, the church should be led. But at the very end, he says, grace be with you all, plural. So it's to be a letter that's not just in the hands of a reader or the leader, but it's to be circulated among the congregation, among those who belong, among the church family. And so it is with you. Steve and I would ask you that as our church family, as the household of God, you're the household of God, to get behind us, to pray for us. We ask that you willingly follow us on the basis of how our lives are lived before God before the church community and before those in our city. And I want to encourage you to, to respond as a church family now. And one of the ways that we are going to respond together is, is through a time of communion and through what we call Renew. Once a year for two Sundays in the year in September, we have what we call Renew together which is, a, is a, a covenant renewal ceremony in which we, we recommit ourselves to the Lord, we re recommit ourselves to the church family, and we recommit ourselves to the mission here in Dublin. And in this time, we would ask that you commit yourselves uh, to, to your new elders. So as we come to our time of communion, a helpful way for us to partake of the bread and wine is to reflect on the past, the present, and the future. You know, in the past, we remember what Jesus has done for us on the cross, to forgive us of our sins, to give us his righteousness and his holiness. <coughs> and so what we're going to do as we share communion is a meal of remembrance. In the present, we look around and we see our brothers and sisters. I want you to look around right now. Just take, take a quick look, three, four seconds. Look around. These are your brothers and sisters. We look around at our brothers and sisters, the family we belong to, and we thank God for them. And we commit ourselves to playing our part in God's family. So this is a meal for the family of God. And then for the future, our heavenly banquet and our, and our future joy. We look forward. And this, we see this as a foretaste of the day in which we gather around the throne of Jesus and we enjoy a glorious feast in the new creation. So this is a meal to give us a taste of what our true home will one day be like. So church, as you come forward to receive and to take of the bread and the wine, I want you to consider the past, consider the present and the future aspects of this meal. And so renew is an annual moment to, to remember what it is to be a church family 
as we journey towards our heavenly home together. So first of all, up to our great God to grow in Christ together, in to care for one another as a family, and then out to partner together in the gospel to reach those around us as a city of Dublin. And so Tim Chester, in his book, Truth You Can Touch, puts it really helpfully like this. He says, every Lord's Supper, every time of communion or Eucharist, is a covenant renewal ceremony. But it might be helpful to have an annual communion service in which covenant renewal is the main focus. And this is what we're doing. A chance to recommit to be members of the church. And he says, we remember our covenant commitments, not just recalling that they exist, but recommitting ourselves to these commitments. And so the covenant that we have entered into is with Jesus. It's by his grace and it's in his blood. And so first we're given our allegiance to him and him alone. And so today at Renew, we want to take time to do this well. We want to take time to do this thoughtfully, to strengthen our ties to the Lord, strengthen our ties to one another, to his mission in Dublin, and to rejoice in his goodness. So here's how we're going to do it. Everyone is going to be invited to come and partake of the bread and the wine who is a follower of Jesus. And if you're not a follower of Jesus, then we would ask that you, you remain in your seat. And I'd just love to invite the, the worship team up now. You know, for those of you who are visiting CCC or who are new or just getting to know the family, we'd encourage you, come forward. Please do join with us in this and remember what God has done for you and consider your role in, uh, in God's church. And, and, and maybe begin to pray in that moment that, that God would guide you to strengthen your place of belonging, either in your own church family or in, in, in CCC, perhaps. And for those of you who do call CCC uh, your home, your family, and you are members of the church, as you come forward, and as you recommit yourself to playing your part in God's family, we would, we would ask you to not only just receive the benefits of being in the family, but consider what it is to take responsibility for the family. So to not just receive, but to be held accountable. So in the same way that we ask that you hold Steve and I to account. It'd be great that you're able to say, well, you know what? I want my church family to hold me to account. So there's going to be some background music playing. We're going to be singing a song. And whenever you're ready, come, come forward. We've got alcoholic and we've non-alcoholic wine and all the bread is gluten-free. And as you come forward, please take the bread and wine and come back to your seats and hold on to it. And Steve is then going to lead us in, uh, in a time of communion together. So um, if you're able, will you stand with me? And let's, let's just have a moment's silence. Now I'm going to pray and the band are going to sing. Father, as we come here, we recognize that, uh, that this is your church. And your church has been bought with your blood. And Father, we thank you that your church is the household of God. And Lord, I pray that your household would be a household that is led well by, by, by qualified elders. And Father, as we have explored what it looks like uh, to, to, to be qualified to lead your church, I pray that this would be a, a, a weighty responsibility that Steve and I would take on. But at the same time, it would be a weighty responsibility that our church members would take on in order to hold us to account to aspire towards and to live in such a way that a watching world sees a, not a dysfunctional family, but a, but a healthy and a flourishing family. And so, Father, we pray that you would come and strengthen your church. You would come and build your church. 
And as we come to renew together, we pray that this would be that moment in which we can recommit ourselves to you afresh, to one another afresh, and to align our hearts with the mission of God in Dublin afresh. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen. Amen.